2022 has been a challenging year so far for most investors. Both stock and bond prices have taken a beating, marking perhaps the abrupt end to a 40-year period of gains like no other and a rate of inflation not seen since 1983. It's time for advisors and investors to take steps to immunize their portfolios against the challenge of the current environment of inflation volatility and rising interest rates. Investing in companies with consistent and growing dividends can provide core building blocks to grow your capital while managing risk in the current environment and over the long term, regardless of changing market conditions. Our very special guest is Shri Iyer, Managing Director of iCubed Investments at Guardian Capital, who now oversees the management of in and around $4 billion in assets under administration of systematic dividend investing strategies. Prior to joining Guardian Capital, Shri was responsible for a variety of portfolio management and financial engineering roles at Global Value Investors in New Jersey and has over 25 years under his belt. I know we're going to have a terrific conversation to share with you, so stay tuned. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Shri, welcome back. It's terrific to see you again and have you on again. Thank you, Pierre. Always my pleasure. Shri, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. For, for those who don't know you, tell us about the span of your career, how you got into the business in the first place, and what you and your team are doing these days. Well, my career started, um, obviously, with my education. I was a... Um, chartered cost accountant in, in, in more into the accounting side. And when I came to the United States for my um, graduate degree in applied finance and statistics, I saw this pretty good intersection between numbers that I'm good at and the application numbers through statistics. Uh, talk about the prelude to data science 25 years later. So what attracted me into finance was my gearing into the world of numbers. And as I further got into finance and statistics and then kind of got myself a, a business administration MBA degree, I was able to kind of start applying a lot of the knowledge I've known in the world of numbers and statistics into the world of investment. So I started out in um, Princeton, New Jersey in a small hedge fund, which was kind of focused on uh, global tactical asset allocation. In a sense, the world in the 90s was very different than the world today in the sense you had a lot of Absolutely. dispersion. You had a lot of dispersion yeah. in the market. So my job was to figure out when to go into the United States and when to short Japan and when to go into France and when not to go into Germany. So there was a lot more dispersion. So that's where I started my career in as a top-down tactical asset allocation hedge fund. And then I moved into bottom-up stock picking models and, and generating um, alpha through stock picking through the uh, 90s. And then right around tech bubble, um, just about the midst of the tech bubble, I moved to Canada and I joined Guardian Capital um, uh, primarily as a global equity manager. But in those days, Canada didn't know what global was because Canada knew EFI, United States, international United States, and they put that together. So I had a pretty big uh, Herculean task to convince Guardian Capital and our management to say that there's a different way to skin this cat and we should be agnostic to size, style, country, region, and let's create a global solution. So we launched a global solution at Guardian Capital in early 2001. 
and the rest is history now. In 2022, we're running $4 billion with a spectrum of global equity solutions covering all the way from accumulation strategies in the realm of quality growth and asset preservation and deaccumulation in the form of dividend growth. So we cover the whole spectrum. Um, and that's been the journey from um, zero assets to about $4 billion currently at Guardian Capital. True, that's pretty awesome. Um, I'm yeah, guessing... it's a Canadian dream. Yeah, it's a Canadian dream. I could say that. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm guessing that you must be pretty darn excited about the change of regime that started at the beginning of this year or last year, if you will, uh, with with uh, the return of inflation and monetary policy. Uh, I and I mean we have dispersion again, right? We have uh, price discovery again. Like, you know, for, for, for like a decade, none of that, like, you know, I, I remember we had, I, I'll tell you, I'll give you a little, you know, I, I, we had a, um, we did a podcast, no, we did a webinar with Craig Lazara from S&P and, you know, in that presentation, he made this point that just rested with me for, I guess it's been four years now, five, five almost five years, uh, since we did that presentation and, and, um, you know, he he basically showed this chart that pointed out that dispersion was at a historical low, mm -hmm. like an all-time historical low. Mm -hmm. And and you know that was like the the clarion call. You know, just give up. I'll take it to just a next. Give. I'll take it to a next level for you. <laughs> the yeah. function of dispersion is just one part of the equation. Right. Alpha is defined as the product of dispersion, active share, and the square root of skill times yeah. transfer coefficient. In the world of convergence, where we're seeing correlation one happen in the world today, uh, forget correlation one within, uh, within equities, you're seeing correlation one between bonds and equities right now. So right. in a world where there is convergence, there is no dispersion. This lack of dispersion has been prevalent in the stock market for a very long time now, almost a decade and a half, with the yeah. formation of the European Union further convergence into MSCI World Index and further into ACWI with the inclusion of China into the WTO. So the de-verticalized supply chain has seen the conventional methods of equity management, whether it is style, size, country, region, beta timing, momentum, all these factors have been less relevant in active management. As dispersion collapsed, you saw active management move more and more into what we call active share. They started to concentrate right. their portfolios more and more because you could not get any insights beyond the concept of converged uh, dispersion. Yeah. So what is left here is the only thing that really matters is your IC times TC, is your information coefficient that do you know something the market doesn't know? And can you transfer the knowledge that you know into a portfolio? That is IC times TC, which is called skill, by the way. So in the, yeah. in the world of last decade, while skill has been finite and dispersion has converged and gone so low, the only thing left was active share. That's all the emergence of concentration type mandates out there. Now, after a decade, you're seeing a lot of things change with the rise in interest rates because the primary principal component of equity valuation or valuation of any class, asset class, is the discount rate. And there's been right. two generations who have not figured out how to value assets when discount rates go from zero to one, let alone to three or four in the near future. So that has created a disintermediation in asset class pricing across multiple asset classes. That is the most 
biggest impact of lack of dispersion in global markets today? Yeah, I mean, the uh, reaction has been seismic. It has. Really, like, uh, you know, when, when you've had no price discovery for, you know, since the great financial crisis, since GFC, there's been absolutely no price discovery. Everything has been driven by this enormous liquidity absolutely. that's been injected into the market. Uh, so, so in a, in that respect, dispersion just got completely. Uh, I I kind pancaked. of joke around with clients who do not get this kind of uh, concept. Yeah. I just say, in a very simplistic way, I say the bond booth at church is closed. You can make every asset allocation sin, <laughs> yeah, uh, and you could be pardoned because of a falling yield curve that is falling interest rates. Now, with rising interest rates and bond volatility. As a multi-asset manager or as a liability-driven manager, as a financial advisor, if you don't get your asset mix right between stocks and bonds and cash in a balanced fund, typical balanced fund format, right, yeah. um, you could have a decade worth of mismatched liability going forward. So it's become extremely crucial amidst bond volatility that you cannot go for confession anymore because the bond asset class is not coming to bail you out, especially in the beginning of this year. So what we see is copular here. That is the correlation between the bond asset class and the equity asset class amidst an inflection point in the rising interest rates. It's a very, very different regime that we're entering in over the last six months that at least two generations in the investment industry have not been in. I, I completely agree with you. I think I think the, um, you know, I, I I was raised on value investing as an advisor. And, and on favoring value investing, whether it was right or wrong in, in hindsight. Uh, it was right for quite some time, until at least until the 2000s. And, um, you know, I, uh, you know, fundamentals mattered. And, and uh, you know, earnings mattered. And so it was very strange. I think one of the conversations, you know, we had with uh, Jeffrey Sherman at DoubleLine, uh, he pointed out something really interesting. I mean, at least it was a perspective on on how the market had been functioning. And he runs an interesting; they they run an interesting strategy at Double Line for for equities as well. Um, and and that's part of the thinking. But he actually said that it was a scarcity of growth, like that that the the term growth is misused or misunderstood, or it has double you know it has double speak meanings. And, and the idea was that during the period of where there was an actual scarcity of growth, growth stocks did extremely well, right? So we had a period, this 10-year period of no growth, uh, the Fed pumping tons of liquidity into the market. Um, inflation was, you know, non-apparent, like it was not, it was, it, it was nowhere to be found. No matter what they did, they couldn't get inflation to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, finally, it took COVID, of course, uh, for 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 the whole, you know, globalization uh, mechanism or framework to fall apart mm -hmm. and to to lead to these supply chain disruptions that are at the core of this inflationary volatility that we're having. Um, but this was in the the, the 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 Jeffrey Sherman's point was that it, that's why duration stocks, high duration stocks, did extremely well. Uh, you know, it was because the discount rate was so low for so long and it was declining for so long. Mm -hmm. It was in a, a trend of continu continuous decline 
that capital was becoming easier and easier to obtain. And that was driving all of these, you know, long duration investments that are, you know, 10, 15, 20 years out into the future where, where you might actually get your, your money back. Mm -hmm. But the reopening trade exposed the inflation and the growth in the economy, uh, which, you know, it's confusing if you, at best it's confusing, right. To, to say that the economy is growing when we have you know, the kind of unemployment that's out there. We have this bifurcation of the economy. I know I'm, we're, I'm getting into the weeds here, but <laughs> I think the, the point was that, you know, what, what he was trying to, the point he was trying to make was that the return of growth. Pierre, I'll add, I'll add to that in a much more visceral way. Yeah. Our approach to investment management is about optimizing duration and credit. Yeah. We are not speaking the word duration. We actually calculate duration for an equity, where we're calculating the sensitivity of a stock's valuation to its free cash flow over 10 years, its terminal value assumptions, and the discount rate we use. The discount rate has been impotent for over a decade. So the only thing that mattered was either cash flow growth. And what cash flow growth became was a proxy for long duration because people could not get upfront growth in cash flow because much of it was being paid out in the context of like a Verizon or an Enbridge or anything else. Right. So the only way you got growth scarcity came from the fact that you had to go way out on the uh, spectrum 10 years and beyond to get that cash flow growth amidst low interest rates because you were discounting something way further out. And the error term did not matter because the interest rates were so low. Now with the rates starting to go up, your error that is, your prediction error further out has become a lot more sensitive. There's also another thing I would like to mention. You talk about growth scarcity. Let me talk about value investing. Right. In my opinion, as compliance would say it, in my opinion, <laughs> value investing is lazy investing. Price to earnings is not value investing. That's right. what the industry proxies value investing into. But P-E ratios are not a definition of value. In today's market cycle with rising interest rates, you're seeing P-E compression. So what is value is a moving goalpost and is like quicksand. So value investing is lazy in the sense of simplicity of tagging a stock as being value or not, in my opinion, is nonsensical. Let's talk about valuation investing rather than value investing. Right. And when you talk about valuation, then it comes down to the brass tracks of looking at free cash flow growth, mapping the discount rate, talking to management, looking at the sensitivity of the stock, the moat around it, as well as the duration risk and the credit risk if you're trying to capture some dividends out of it. Both spectrums of the industry is lazy. The thematic response, just buying the long beta of extreme long duration stocks and getting 90% one year and then 80% down this year is also as lazy as buying cheap stocks and expecting them to go up. Yeah. The real asset management, as you rightly said, that is being disintermediated now is how do you map the true valuation of an equity and a company? And what are the true risk premia that you need to capture holding on to a company? That aspect makes you extremely different from the traditional products that are pushed into the market. The market lives in the tails. Product cycles live in the tails. Yeah. What is needed today is the middle. 
and not the tails. That is the core essence of active management today, where we, I think the industry is going, is the tail aspects, which was being buttressed by low interest rates, is now gone. So your tails are going to get a lot more volatile, while the middle is going to be somewhat more relatively relevant to equity asset pricing and fixed income pricing on a go-forward basis. It's time to get to the middle and move away from the tails. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Shri, for uh, for sharing that. Shri, did you did you um, did you ever imagine when you were younger that you'd be doing this? The more I think about it, I would say the answer is a big yes, because when my my parents put me into um, accounting. It means at the highest level of accounting, you become a charter accountant, charter cost accountant. It's not like it's that, yeah. but it never, I never got endured to that aspect. But it really taught me what a profit and loss balance sheet cash flow is. And I truly understand what a company is. Today, people think that a company is some kind of like, people treat an equity like Bitcoin. They don't even understand the valuation. It's become a speculative instrument rather than a fundamental instrument. When you try yeah. to own a company, it's much more fundamental than people understand. So for me, my journey from going from accounting and understanding profit and loss balance sheet and cash flow and corporate finance to the depths that one should understand, and then applying statistics and data science as I do right now, um, I truly feel emancipated of being who I am. This is what I was destined to be, is being a data scientist who could combine fundamentals of profit and loss balance sheet and cash flow, which is what I call traditional fundamental data, with alternative data like new sentiment analytics, management transcripts, as well as digital data sets that corroborate fundamentals of a company and use these two together and predict the earnings potential and growth of a company, as well as its payout sustainability. The whole journey of my education and what I've been trying to do has culminated into a very strong process where now I am the dumbest person in my team that consists of engineers, data scientists, right. mathematicians, statisticians, and we are a team of individuals and engineers and data scientists who are now using all the skill set that we have. And I'm basically an architect that is kind of spearheading the formation of what I call, in my opinion, the new way of investing or the renaissance in investing that combines data science or big data with fundamental investing. That intersection is what I feel all along I felt is what I needed to be. So the answer yeah. is a big yes, that yes, this is what I wanted to do. I, I was really excited to ask you that question, by the way. Thank you. Thank you because, for asking me um, that. <laughs> you know, um, speaking of which, I think, you know, the last time we spoke, you know, you, you talked about how you and your team were uh, teaching the AI how to find dividend growers and uh, dividend initiators and cutters uh, and cutters. And, and um, you know, it seems to me that technology has accelerated uh, maybe in several orders of magnitude over the last five years. And I wonder, it made me wonder, you know, has it become, you know, as, as the, 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 the speed of processing has increased and the tools or the hardware available for processing like the GPUs, 
that are backing AI, you know, from companies like uh, NVIDIA and, uh, for example, um, has it made your work even more profound or easier or, or faster or how, how have things changed just in a couple of years since we last spoke in that respect? So I would say it hasn't made my work easier, but it has made my work profound. I know we use those yeah. two words side by side, but they're very different meanings. Absolutely. I think it has yeah. made our investment process profound. And the reason I say that is in our industry, the noise to signal ratio is very high. Much of the data is noisy and very distractive. Uh, before the predating data science, we used to call it behavioral finance, as you know, right? Uh, in, in a quantitative sense. Uh, what we have seen is with the abundance of big data and digital data right now, there's much more distractions to the investment world than there was about a decade ago. So even if you look at some of our uh, volatility prediction models, we have 17 asset classes now in our volatility models. When I started the business about 25, 30 years ago, I used to have six asset classes. So there's a lot of noise out there and the intermediation between different asset classes. The emergence of artificial intelligence or machine learning has made it profound in the sense that guys like us who are held to high degrees of precision are now able to move away from that shackle and move into higher degrees of accuracy. Now, when I talk about precision, what I mean is as a money manager, I'm expected to know everything about a stock and know the future in, in its perfection. That's not the way investment management works. That's not the way stock selection works. Stock selection works based on certain past history, past analysis, and some degree of a prediction of what you expect it to do forward. That could be biased based on the kind of data you look at. Whether you're a statistician like myself or a fundamental money manager, what you read could bias you in a certain direction. What artificial right. intelligence has done for us is it has moved us away from the concept of being biased in our opinions to using massive amounts of big data across every spectrum and aspect of the market and come up with a more accurate response to a prediction. That is extremely profound in its impact for money managers where we no longer need to carry the football from our own 20-yard line and try to score a touchdown. Artificial intelligence takes the ball all the way to the 20-yard line of the opponent, and I can walk in as a human being at the red zone level right, in playing the game. So the probability of this <clears throat> PM or quarterback scoring a touchdown at the opponent's 20-yard line is significantly higher than a traditional asset manager who's starting on his own 20-yard line who has to sift through a bunch of information, bunch of distractions, and then score a touchdown. So it's all a measure of probability of success. And a probability of success can be measured by accuracy, not by precision. So that is the cornerstone of the profoundness of investment management and what the impact of AI is the investment industry. And in my opinion, it's only starting. Uh, we have been, right. uh, in my opinion, pioneers in the space uh, over the last four to five years. And we have been training our artificial intelligence models to think like humans 
and to look for things that any prudent individual like myself and you would look for in a company to grow its dividends. But it's easier said than done because you need domain knowledge, accounting knowledge, yeah. <laughs> experience. Right. You need statistical knowledge to understand how the statistics work in an artificial intelligence framework. So in training an artificial intelligence system to think like a human or to look through fundamental data and come up with a recommendation that is intuitive to a human being's far more complex brain is a very profound journey. And I would say myself and my team, Adam, Yvonne, um, and uh, hopefully a couple of new data scientists joining our team are just starting and improving ourselves exponentially year after year. So it's not, an, it's not a given end to that per process. It is very much a journey in investment management that started about four to five years ago and continues to grow at a very fast pace. That's my answer That's to fair. your impact of AI and how profound it is <laughs> to investment management. That's fascinating. It is fascinating. I, um, I just want to go back to something that you said in, in, uh, in responding to that question, which was that the, the problem of behavioral finance that existed prior to uh, the work that you're doing, um, maybe, you know, have that be the, the demarcation um, based on what you were uh, explaining is that we're not agnostic, right? I mean, human beings, we're not agnostic to our belief systems. We're not agnostic to our biases. Um, you know, we'll, we'll read, we'll read, we'll pick up five articles or read five articles from five different sources and we'll tend to favor the pieces that agree with our biases, right? And, and, and that's a problem. That's problematic because, because then it can wrongfully increase our bias uh, or incorrectly confirmation increase our bias, bias. Yeah. right? So, so it, it's, it's, it creates a, a, a conflicted system of decision-making, but the way that you're training your AI to uh, gather data and assimilate it and, and put it all together is in an agnostic fashion, which ignores those bias traps, those behavioral traps, and and uh, sort of flattens or levels the playing field for for all of those risks. Correct. Uh, in 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 the you know determination of a making a conclusion about something. Correct. <clears throat> Whether a stock is a dividend grower or continue to grow or cut or initiate a company. I mean. Not not a stock, but um, so that that's very interesting because I think I think that's also been a big part of of the idea of systematization in the first place was just to eliminate the eliminate luck from from the investing equation Correct. to e eliminate supposition and subjective biases from that uh, in order to make all the evaluations as clean as possible. Correct, and. Well, if, if you if you if you contextualize it in the world of statistics, it's called underfitting and overfitting. Right. If you are if you are just reading five articles and making a decision, you will underfit your process. That is, you'll build a confirmation in your head, but which might not be true in the real world. The other side of it is once you realize it's not 
I'm not reading the right things or I'm not read enough. You read too much and you get too much variance. So you yeah. go from bias to variance. Both are suboptimal in the world of investment management. When you have bias, you think you're, you're very precise. The problem with being precise is that you could be precisely wrong. And being precisely yeah. wrong in the investment world is very dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. On the other hand, if you have too much variance and your predictions are all over the place, then you do not show any kind of conviction to your end client. And the client will perceive yourself as a money manager all over the place. Or you could see style drift, as we know in our industry, or we see performance chasing. All that happens when there's too much variance. What artificial intelligence does is it takes away the bias variance equation out of the human's hands and gives it to a machine who can optimize the trade-off between maximum variance and maximum bias. The optimization of bias and variance in a very simplistic statistical world is called artificial intelligence. It's nothing more profound than that. Yeah. So this goes back to what you were saying earlier about bringing the range of possibilities to the center Correct. of a distribution of the distribution curve. And how do you bring the center? Um, you take an average right? of many things yeah. to bring it to the center. So I have this picture in my head of when you know you see the uh, NOAA reports about hurricanes, and um, you know you see you see on the weather map. They show you the future, you know, the range of possibilities happening for where that hurricane is mm -hmm. going to go, right? And it, and it gets wider and wider with each day, right? Because, because there's no way to know uh, exactly. It's path, like, you know, it's path. Right? It's path. But, but when you say you want to find closer to the center, then, then you, what you're doing is trying to narrow that down to, down to a more, a narrower band. Um, and that, I mean, I, I know we're talking about the distribution curve with, you know the left and right tails, and how, um, and how do you come to the most kind of how do you come to the most yeah. probable path of the hurricane by taking the average yeah. of all the predictions? The more predictions you make, and you take the average of more predictions, more accurate your actual path becomes. So in our world, when we're predicting dividends for say McDonald's, we yeah. have two thousand paths for the hurricane of dividends for McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. We have two thousand paths for more than three thousand companies which then self-learn from it. So when you average out 2,000 paths of the hurricane of dividends, you get one average dividend growth rate for a company. And that's as close to the real scenario as you could possibly be. We not yeah. only do that for dividend predictions, now we have improved ourselves to do 2,500 hurricane paths for earnings one year out. Earnings are a lot more harder to predict than dividends. Dividends are sticky. Uh, generally, when a company pays dividends, it continues to pay dividends, unlike, unless there's a subprime or a COVID-type event that happens. Right. But earnings could be affected by a myriad of things. So to predict earnings paths is as hard as predicting a hurricane's path. So you predict 2,500 times every day, and you average it out. And then when you look at NVIDIA's predicted one-year earnings growth, or Google's one-year earnings growth, or Airbnb's earnings growth, you could then get a little bit more of a better perception of where that storm is going, that earning storm is going. The earning storm in Europe is very, very bad today. If I show you my artificial intelligence output today, Europe is in a deep recession. And we have been right. saying this for the last six months in Europe. United States is heading into a recession. Its earnings are converging. 
There was some separation early on in the year, late last year, but now you're starting to see all 11 gig sectors starting to converge. Even energy, which was way about the dispersion path, its storm path, hurricane path, yeah. way about everybody <clears throat> else in a good way, has started to now moderate itself because of the subjective conversation of demand destruction coming out of out of um, out of uh, a recession, impending recession, which is then being conflicting against the supply disruption that we have seen over the last decade of underinvestments in the commodity space. So the battle between supply shock and demand destruction is being played out in front of our eyes in the storm of yeah. energy and commodities. So we are predicting that storm. So everything is connected. An innocuous statement like building out a storm path through AI is very similar to what we do with our predictions. That is absolutely just mind-boggling and fascinating. Um, so that's a perfect segue to set the table for for you know what we're here to actually talk about today, um, which is dividends, dividend growers, dividend payers, dividend, dividend cutters. cutters, yeah. And um, so, in your wider research as a firm, uh, you've called out three findings. The first is that dividend stocks have typically earned higher historical returns with less risk. The second is that payments from dividend payers are an effective buffer against volatility. And the third is that dividend growers and payers are resilient during periods of high inflation and rising rates, outperforming relative to non-payers and dividend cutters. So now that's the really, that's what we've been talking about up until now. I couldn't have said you, it better myself. You, I couldn't have right? said it how better you, myself. <laughs> How do you narrow the range of selection possibilities for your portfolios given those three outcomes? So, Shri, let's spend some time here. Um, I've brought some of your charts to the conversation. Mm. How do you like that? Uh, that was a surprise to me. So I will try to interpret the charts uh, as you bring it up on the All screen. Right. All right. So here's the first one. Uh, give me one second here. It would be my team's charts, not my chart. So let's see if right. I could, uh, well, this is kind of like the aggregation of, of a lot of your research, but it's, I mean, yeah. the findings, I mean, this is the purpose, speaks to the purpose of, it speaks to itself. this is, this is the, uh, the precursor to, you know, why would you want to identify the best dividend stocks you can possibly identify? And so here's a chart from Ned Davis Research. Mm -hmm. Companies that can grow dividends have historically led in performance. So here's the secret sauce here, in my opinion. When you look at dividends as an asset class, the first thing people's mind goes to is towards beta. That is own dividends. My my. My father-in-law owns BC and Enbridge. Somebody owns Verizon in the United States. That's what your first thing you think when you think of dividends. You think of the market beta. The problem with the dividend as an asset class is it always underperforms your expectations over long-term cycles. I'm talking the beta aspect. And right. the reason for that is 
dividend as an asset class has a lot of dispersion within it. So on this chart, you could clearly see the spread or separation between dividend growers, just dividend paying stocks with not much volatility and dividend cutters. When people do it by themselves or when people start looking at dividends as an asset class and buy dividend strategies, they tend to chase yield because that's the only number that is intuitive to them. Chasing dividend yield is like value investing. It's a lazy, lazy approach to investing. When you buy dividend beta, you invariably get exposed to the dividend cutters. And you could see how devastating the performance is when you own a dividend cutting stock in your portfolio, that one bad stock or one bad apple in the basket to take away the whole liability experience that you're trying to get into dividends in the first place. So in this chart, whether you see subprime in 2009, you could see right. where dividend cutters just did not hold up. Or during COVID, this is the experience most people get when they own dividend stocks during crisis period like COVID as well as subprime is because they have a lot of companies that cut their dividends, their total return experience is highly jaded. What we did in our research through artificial intelligence is we're able to see the granularity and the risk premium within the dividend asset class. And we're able to find out that stocks with mid to long-term duration that have an upfront payout do extremely well because they have less credit risk and better duration risk, while companies that pay a lot of dividends have very little duration risk but have very high credit risk. So what we train our artificial intelligence systems to do within the three core buckets of growth, payout, and sustainability feature sets we define what growth should be for a dividend-paying stock. We define what sustainability should be for a dividend-paying stock. And we define what a payout should be for a dividend-paying stock. And we teach an artificial intelligence system to take all dividend-paying stocks in the world and separate them into dividend growers, dividend cutters, high dividend-paying stocks with low credit risk, and high dividend-paying stocks with high credit risk. And of course, stocks that don't pay dividends. In our analysis and in our AI systems and in our backtests, we can corroborate the evidence that Ned Davis is showing you here. This is just a simple linear uh, yeah. CAGR chart. But our analysis, and we have put a paper on that, and, and we have shown that to the industry, that our paper shows that chasing yield is not the right liability match in the world of dividends optimizing duration and credit within the asset class of equities where you demand an upfront payout with a mid to long duration of cash flow growth visibility and avoiding dividend cutters completely is the approach to create superior risk-adjusted returns in the world of dividend investing. I don't even think we are a dividend manager. We are a duration credit manager. And when you optimize duration and credit, it just so happens you're looking for positive cash flow and positive cash flow growth 
And when you see positive cash flow and positive cash flow growth, invariably a company pays out a dividend and grows its dividend. That right. is where we feel as an asset class and as an intellectual properties response, we are far ahead of the market, in my opinion. So let's talk about uh, the next chart, which accompanies that first chart that we that you were just that we were just uh, on. Um, it, it, uh, it's the other side of the coin. Uh, you you showed yeah, return, now you're showing volatility, and you could see it's a double whammy. Not only do you get bad returns, but you get excessive volatility with dividend cutters. So right. the exposure to credit risk is intense. I'll give you one more indication today on this podcast. A dividend cut is a credit risk. One of the risks that we have not seen just yet happen, which we saw doing subprime, is liquidity risk. Right. Do not for one second think that high dividend paying stocks are immune to liquidity problems. So as we head into this protracted negative earning cycle and other aspects of PMI deteriorating and macroeconomic deterioration amidst a war in Europe and a recession in Europe, one of the known unknowns in the market will be liquidity. I think liquidity will be a bigger, I think, my opinion, whatever compliance would say was the right word. In my opinion, liquidity is a bigger risk than recession to the stock market and bond market on a go-forward basis. And when you have a liquidity crunch, high-yielding asset classes generally tend to underperform. We teach an artificial intelligence system these aspects using historical data, be it subprime or COVID or anything else. So stay away from high-yielding instruments amidst a recession because liquidity crisis could be around the corner and focus on high-quality, mid- to long-duration companies with free cash flow, defensible moats, and pay upfront dividends and grow their dividends, while also owning high-quality companies in certain industries that do pay high yield, whether it be energy, commodities, or insurance companies that are paying anywhere from 4 to 7% yield. You should also own those companies because there is a tailwind when it comes to the supply shock in the form of commodities and energy and in, 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 in commodities like copper and steel, while yeah. at the same time, insurance companies that benefit significantly from equity and bond volatility and increasing in interest rates, you can actually get a payout from benefiting from insurance companies in the form of better yields and better shareholder-friendly responses to the market. Dividend growers are significantly more shareholder-friendlier than dividend cutters and high-dividend-yielding stocks. That's that's a terrific insight. I think I think you're right. I think investors look at at the dividend yield universe and they think, oh, you know, here's one that's you know yielding a high, you know, providing a high dividend yield. Uh, why don't we do, you know, why don't we just take that? But it doesn't pay attention to the things you just explained, which is that uh, dividend growers uh, have significantly better returns over the long term and significantly lower volatility as well. Dividend cutters are a high credit risk? Yes, they are. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that. How dividends impacted the returns by decade? I mean, here the, the, the context here is just showing that 
again, if I use a very simple word, for the last decade, you mentioned it, you prefaced it to say that, uh, let me use this word again, the church of dividends was empty for 10 years because everybody yeah. is going to Bitcoin and any, any asset class that was supported by low interest rates and speculation was where we went in. Uh, speculating is laziness. It's nothing to do with understanding why you're owning something. So a generation of free assets, free money, has moved into speculative asset classes. As a result, as the duration risk grows, the contribution of upfront payouts reduces in an asset class. Now what we're seeing is rising interest rates just mathematically. You're seeing the duration of an asset class like equity starting to shrink. When your duration shrinks, the upfront payout or the dividend payout that you're getting from these companies start to become a larger component of your total return. In a rising interest rate cycle where long bonds will give you anywhere from 35 to 4%, Equities in general are going to have a pretty interesting time competing against a 4% yield out of the bond asset class on a go-forward basis, where your risk premium, how much a 7% inflation, is so low right now. Equity owners are going to demand a higher risk premium out of equities on a go-forward basis, given the 7 8% inflation and rising interest rates. So the opportunity set amidst lower return profiles out of equities on a go-forward basis, by itself makes the case for dividends becoming a larger portion of the total return of owning equities into the next decade, which was not the case in the previous decade. So you're going to see right. the church of dividends getting a lot more full. I'm going to put pews on, pews on the street now when, because <laughs> people are going to rush in. So it's not about dumb investing in dividends. you got to understand the kernels of DCF modeling right. and duration and credit. And you could see that high quality dividends will trade at a premium going into this next cycle of both fixed income and equity volatility. And we see like if you're looking at the last two columns on the chart, 2010s versus 1930 to 2021, you're looking at the previous decade versus the mean. Mm -hmm. And what you're expecting in a way is that there'll be a reversion to the mean of the importance of dividends as a component of total return. Very much so. But it's not, it's not um, uh, also, what is not, what uh, is not uh, to well, be uh, not ignored here is if you look at the 2000s, you could see that when you go through a negative asset cycle, yeah. price appreciation can be negative, but dividends are positive. You could see right, that and that's a buffer. Happen. That's a buffer. That's a, that's a buffer against the drawdowns. Correct. Exactly. Of the period. Exactly. Yeah. Get paid while you but, wait. Uh, sorry, and I, I said I think I need to correct myself because I said reversion to the mean of the importance of dividends as a component of total return, but I, I think what I meant to say was that it's a reversion. It's a reversion a to the mean of of yes of price return. That's right. the right way to. There's a reversion of mean of price return that was inflated over a decade of free money. Dividends, the blue bars, have been reasonably constant and will play a bigger role depending on where the, where the price appreciation goes or not. So you're talking about optimal credit duration when you have a carry. So let's say the market beta pays you 2%, we pay 3%, or the market beta pays you 3%, we pay you 4%. Having that 1% payout higher than the market 
buffers a lot of the alpha volatility of price appreciation volatility that people have to endure. So dividend is not Amazing. the icing on the cake. Dividend is the cake. Alpha and price appreciation is the icing. Interesting. Very interesting. I think I think people I think most investors have it backwards. Most investors have it backwards. Out. Can't blame them. So when you've got free money, you no. can't blame people. <laughs> well, that 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 we we've uh, turned the corner on that, haven't we? I think there's an inflection point in the market with bond yields at three and a half percent and breaking out. Yeah. Well, I'll 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 soften that. We may have turned the corner on that. We may have. <laughs> Um, so now here we're talking about the difference in volatility between dividend growers and non-payers. Here again, the real essence of this chart here is when we back-tested this information, also we found out is, I can only speak to our dividend growth strategy, what we do, our, right. our duration credit portfolio is highly positively correlated. It's alpha or its ability to beat the stock market is statistically significantly correlated to volatility. Higher volatility, greater the chance of outperformance, lower the volatility, greater the chance of underperformance. We have had low vol regimes for a very long time. Uh, sorry, high, uh, very low volatility regime for a very long time. Now you're starting to see equity volatility start to rise again. Because we are positively correlated to volatility, you start to see our outperformance starting to look a lot better. Now, this is not us. This is just uh, Ned Davis's research to show that when right, VIX right. is about 20%, average outperformance of dividend growers versus non-dividend payers is about 2%. Uh, we can corroborate that in an actual sense in what, how we manage money. But that regime has not been around for a long time, the greater than 20%. It happened during COVID. It happened during subprime. But now we're starting to see it being a little bit more prolonged than we normally see during, say, a black swan type event. So if you feel that we are heading into a higher volatility VIX regime or turbulence regime, then dividend growth and an optimal duration credit strategy should continue to do well like it has done. For the last two years, we have had um, some pretty good um, um, outperformance. Um, while you also notice at the bottom, average, in general, when VIX increases, we do well too. And this has been corroborated by a passive response. I'm saying we're doing even better in an active response. So liability yeah. matching has to happen in this realm, where you have return and risk on the same sides, where the industry has not been in because we had free money. It was all about returns, not about risk. I think that is changing, in my opinion. Yeah. But so the conclusion of this this finding here in this in this graph or this uh, table is that um, periods of higher volatility are beneficial or or periods of higher oh, no, volatility no, no. are beneficial for cash flow visibility, right? And cash flow visibility is equal to dividend growth and dividend yield. Now, does that have anything to do with investors? Uh, um, flight to safety, looking for quality or flight to quality? To a large extent, yes. Yeah. Upfront, that's what the biggest principal component is. People sell and buy proxies. The initial round of allocation goes into proxy asset classes. 
which is basically beta. It's only after a protracted regime that people shift away from beta to alpha, to active management. So if you really look at, I don't know if you have the chart, but there's a chart that shows that upfront when you start to see the rate hike cycle, dividend cutters or high yield does the best in the first three to six months of a rate hike regime. But then it kind of starts to peter out because you start to see the sensitivity of the long bond hurting high yield like it does any other asset class. Right. Not only does it hurt bond proxies as interest rates start to go up because people start to say, why am I owning this high credit risk instrument paying me 4.5% dividends while I can own a bond, a 10-year treasury at 4%. So that asset class starts to see its clientele move back into bonds when bond yields have gone up to a level where the market thinks it's sustainable and it'll stay. As bond yields start to go up and interest rates start to go up, you start to see volatility in equity markets go up because your error term of your long-duration stock starts to go up and you start to see a lot of volatility in the market like we saw in the technology space or in moonshot stories in thematic. So even non-dividend-paying stocks start to underperform the market amidst a rising interest rate regime on a go-forward basis. And dividend growers start to outperform every other asset class is because they have that optimality of a cash flow buffer a dividend buffer, and you cannot grow your dividends without earnings growth or cash flow growth. So invariably, you reside back into the world of Johnson Johnson, McDonald's, Nestle, Apple, Microsoft, right. and you get away from the Bitcoins and all the other tail tech stocks, as well as thematic uh, moonshot stocks. That migration is happening, I don't think so, in a very knee-jerk way. I think it's happening in a in my personal opinion, it's happening in a very protracted and a sustained way. The wildebeests are migrating. The wildebeests <laughs> are picture. migrating. <laughs> that is quite a picture. It's quite the picture. Yeah. It should have happened two years ago, but we had COVID and we had $35 trillion worth of cash flow infusion. And at the peak of COVID, we had 1,000 rate cuts in subprime. Now we're heading into 200 plus rate hikes over the last six months. So the wildebeest yes. is migrating. Staggering. That's, uh, that, that is amazing. I, I mean, that's an amazing insight. Even you pause that. I'll take that as a credit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, uh, now what are we looking at here? Excess return of dividend paying stocks versus S and P 500 in different inflation buckets from 1970 to 2021. Excess return of dividend paying stocks versus S&P index in different inflation buckets. So I think what- what from Goldman Sachs. Yeah, I think what is being said here, I think what we're trying to, try to explain here is, pick your regimes of inflation. So let's start with that. So right. are we in a 4 to 5% inflation? Let's say that's your normative uh, distribution. But obviously we are in the 6 to 7% inflation. And what you're seeing here is, what against the S&P 500, which asset class has the largest excess returns? And what did, I think what this chart is saying here, I don't know what period it was. It, it doesn't tell you how far back no, it, it goes. Just, <clears throat> I think it just looks at historical Nin periods. Yeah, 1970 where... to 2021. It's basically trying to say 
very much what we have said in multiple charts before, that when you have high inflation, which leads to the Fed starting to aggressively go to combat that inflation through rising interest rates, rising interest rates re results in volatility rising as well as impending recessions. And when that happens, and when you try to fight the Fed in that space, generally dividend stocks do better than non-dividend paying stocks. It is intuitive, and this is just a linear response to say that amidst any kind of inflation scenario beyond 4 to 5%, it looks like getting an upfront rent out of companies without expecting too much in the future seems to be a very, very effective way of adding value. The conclusion of all this empirical uh, data or charts that we've been talking about here is that dividend growers, dividend initiators provide resilience to a portfolio and dividend cutters are a credit risk. Yes. And a, and a dividend yeah. growers and sustainable dividend payers both provide resilience and income while chasing yield without getting the understandings of duration risk and credit risk generally leads to underperformance. Okay, and I think this is our last chart. This is the chart I was explaining already in the sense that if you look at the right. uh, uh, performance um, X months after the rate hike regime starts, first Fed rate hike, you could clearly see that initially dividend cutters are what we call high dividend yielders outperform, but then they give up the leadership uh, to dividend growers, which have optimality in credit risk and, and duration. So in the end, I would say in a very simplistic way, don't fight the Fed. Always seek moderate to long duration to stay vested in the stock market and avoid credit risk in the form of high dividends and demand an upfront cash flow payout by these cash flow rich companies that are growing their dividends. Those would be the cornerstones of outperforming the stock market, in our opinion, for a dividend-based strategy. In a nutshell, dividend stocks are more resilient during periods of inflation and inflation volatility, as well as rising rates. Very much so. So, Shri, we, we've talked about these empirical, you know, we've, we've looked at some empirical data now. And I think, I think uh, just to, to clarify, the empirical data really provides... Uh, an impetus for all the work you've been doing. I mean, I think if you you can conclude from the charts we've looked at, because these aren't your charts, these are charts from Ned Davis and Goldman Sachs, that that there's a reason for why you do what you do, right? There's a reason yes. for why you're 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 in you're seeking um, dividend payers, dividend growers, dividend initiators. And, and seeking to also identify dividend cutters. And, and so these five charts provide the sort of the empirical impetus to, to do this work and to do it to, to, you know, to find a way to improve on it. Correct. When did you and your colleagues realize, when did you first realize that you were onto something? I would say 2017, 2016, 2017, when we um, went through the maturation cycle of high yield in the sense uh, we used to get invariably disappointed in buying high yield stocks for our clients and provide them a higher yield. Because while the sticker looked good, 
the implied risks in those stocks showed up consistently crisis after crisis or cycle after cycle. So we were at an inflection point to figure out how do we avoid these dividend cutters? How do we avoid this mesmerizing yield number that people seem to gravitate towards while it is injurious to their health? So how do you create a solution that is counterintuitive to get people to come to you? In 2016, 2017, with the emergence of alternative data sets and uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, our data scientists took on the task of researching the principal components of dividend investing through our backtesting models to find out what aspects or principal components of dividend investing really work over the long-term cycles. And we were shocked to see how poorly dividend investing did if you continue to stay lazy and just chase higher-yielding stocks and create a proxy as a bond proxy for investors. We then ran an exercise to figure out how do we exclude risky stocks from the high dividend universe? In doing that, we found out through machine learning and artificial intelligence system that what the machine learning system was using, because machines don't overfit, humans do, machines don't. Right. What we found out, it, what it starts to use was features like historical earnings growth, historical cash flow growth, lower payouts, lower yield, all of these features were being used by the artificial intelligence system to tell us to avoid certain highly risky, high dividend yielding stocks. As we continue to do that research, we found out that the classification of stocks that had the fourth quintile of dividend payout rather than the fifth quintile of dividend payout, the fourth quintile of dividend yield rather than the fifth quintile of dividend yield was the sweet spot that not only gave you a fair yield, but also gave you a sustainable yield supported by cash flow growth and a good duration. That allowed us to refinance, I use the word correctly, refinance our alpha and use the artificial intelligence system to get implemented in our stock selection models and it kind of pivoted away from the lazy aspects of linearly chasing after higher dividend-paying stocks and moving us aggressively into predicted cash flow growth and sustainable dividend yield. That migration was profound and completely changed the way we looked at dividend investing. And we became, in my opinion, pioneers of quality yeah. growth and high dividend yield without a dividend cut. Our history of our strategy, we have not had a dividend cut since inception. And we have had no dividend cuts during subprime, no dividend cuts during uh, COVID, especially COVID. Well, there were a lot of dividend cuts in the universe. So we're quite fortunate to use artificial intelligence systems and high grade our investment process to eliminate the probability of disappointment on a go-forward basis. That's absolutely remarkable. I, uh, you know, I, 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 um, 
I guess my, my last question about the, uh, uh, you know, um, my, my question, one of my follow-up questions about the AI was, you know, will it, will, will they ever become self-driving? Will your AI ever become self, self-fulfilling and self-driving or, 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 uh, is the aim just, I think, I think that there's, I don't want to make the mistake of leaving, uh, our, you know, leaving advisors with the impression that, that this is something that happens on its own. I think just to reinforce the point you made earlier, which is that, you know, all of this artificial intelligence groundwork that's happening is to get you to the 20 yard Correct. line. Right. It's not, it's not to carry out the, the decision. It doesn't replace humans. It augments no. humans. Yeah. Investment management on a so, go forward basis is what I call augmented reality. That is, the realities in front of you, the markets, we're seeing what's going on. But if it can be augmented by artificial intelligence, you see more clearly. Artificial intelligence allows you to seek more than see. Seeing leads to hubris. Right. Seeking leads to knowledge. I if you it. have knowledge, then you could do a better job for your client. My job is to improve my batting average not hit a home run. Improving a batting average increases the probability of winning. A home run looks pretty exciting, might draw the audience in, but it's not a guarantee to win the game. Yeah. See, I, ha I had this whole analogy. I, I told you before we got started in our, in our pre-chat, I had this whole, this whole analogy about, you know, baseball, mm -hmm. right? Uh, to preface our conversation, and then I abandoned it because I thought it wasn't good enough. But but the idea was that you know we had ten years of major league hitters facing a Fed that were was playing a very long slow pitch game. So imagine, you know, home runs everywhere. Yes, right. Yeah. Because because every ball you can swing at every ball, just like you know Casey at bat. You know, Warren, Warren Buffett's favorite quote, you know, just because someone throws a ball at you doesn't mean you have to swing for it. Right. And, and, uh, but, but in a, in a, in a baseball game where the Fed is constantly throwing you easy pitches, you can swing at everything and you'll get a home run almost every time, especially if you're a major league hitter. But now the Fed has returned back to the hard, the fast pitch game, right? The fast pitch game is a different game. You got curveballs, you got sliders, Absolutely. knuckleballs, a lot more strikeouts. Uh, they're a lot faster, you know, you can't even, you know, the balls come at you so fast you can barely see them. And um, I learned this, by the way, in a batting cage where, where, you know, a ball was coming at me at 90 miles an hour and I couldn't even see it. And I realized this is why, this is the difference between Major League Baseball and, and baseball. <clears throat> but, but now, you know, the game has gone back to a pro level. It's gone back to where, you know, you can't no you can no longer feel certain about the idea that you could do it yourself. And and that's why that's really a big part of why we wanted to revisit our conversation with you because the regime uh does appear to be changing or has uh turned the corner towards that. Um it will take investors a very long time to turn that ship realizing you know the market dynamics are completely upended now by interest rates inflation supply chain disruptions deglobalization reshoring all these things these these fundamental 
things you know, that you are talk happening about, in our you lives. You talk about broad lives. passive, uh, you talk about investing, and we know passive investing <laughs> is big. Uh, let yeah. me ask a question. That's a big shift to turn. Do you know That's your a big beta? Shift to, to write. Do you know your yeah. beta? When you invest passively, do you know and understand the beta you're investing in? Yeah. That beta it's a, a terrific question. It's changing. Yeah. I'd say I'm not even going to try to weigh in on that question. I know it was a rhetorical question. Yeah, it was question. a rhetorical question. Um, <laughs> but uh Shri, that's uh, you know, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm so I'm so excited to to, you know, I'm so looking forward to sharing this. I uh I have one last question for you, and it's uh nothing to do with investing or maybe it is um <laughs> you know if it turn it, it might it might it might turn out to be uh so here goes what is an interest or a hobby that you could talk about for hours yoga okay it's neither it's not a hobby it's my interest right now. Uh, uh, COVID was transformational for me as individually as a as a human being. As a data scientist, I used to always engineer outwardly to everything I do. It's about time I started to do engineer myself inwardly. So for me, one of the most interesting things is about inner engineering myself and trying to not get impacted by external circumstances uh, over the next stage of my life, to stay removed from events that have no bearing on my self-happiness and self-discovery path. I'm on a journey of self-discovering myself through the eight stages of yoga, which goes all the way from your daily life of how you lead your life in a, in a good way to the ultimate yep. end of uh, what, what you say, it, what we say is um, samadhi or full renunciation. Uh, that journey of self-engineering and inner engineering is what has consumed me and has kept me going beyond my work life. It has had positive responses for me with my team, with my management, with my mandate, my portfolio, as well as the clients that I serve. So it has brought a big sense of humility, sincerity, credibility, accountability, and fiduciary responsibility. And all of these things are not taken lightly by myself or my team. So that's what has become the most interesting aspect of my life in the context of where I see my interests lie. If I may also add one more aspect to this in a investment connotation, because this is an investment uh, conversation. What I've realized in our industry is our industry always, in my opinion, in my opinion, our industry always focuses on maximization. This is an analogy right. of the softball, slow balls, or low interest rates. We always focus on maximizing sales, maximizing returns, 
maximizing relationships, maximizing wealth, maximizing um, presence, maximizing everything. Our philosophy is to minimize, not maximize. Because the glide path from point A to point B can be reached in a more fluid and less volatile state by minimizing than by maximizing. You still get to the same point B, but the journey is significantly more painful when the only uh, approach to it is maximization. If you try to minimize certain things in your life as a person or in the form of investing, you generally lead to a superior end path to your solution. So those are the two summarized philosophies or interests that I gear towards with my engineering team to kind of motivate them to make sure that there is no hubris and there's always questioning of what we do. We always debate. We always have different angles to what we do and then motivate my leaders and pioneers in my team to come up with solutions to give people the glide path to reach point B for point A in the least volatile fashion. That's the biggest goal of myself on a go-forward basis as a money manager, as the head of IQ Investments, and someone who's responsible for people's money. Wow. Um, Shri, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was, that was, uh, that was profound. You asked a question, <laughs> I gave you my honest answer. You know, that, that's, that's something that uh, I want to uh, give give our audience a, um, a real sense of who you are and, and what you do. And I think, I think that's, I think that's, that's a really important dimension of, of, um, you know, building a, uh, a sense of, of, you know, your presence in the industry. Shri, thank you so much. I, I, uh, you know, I anticipated a great conversation. I don't think I anticipated how great of a conversation it was going to be. I want to thank you uh, again so much for your incredibly valuable time and likewise your incredibly valuable insight. It's been uh, enthralling talking to you today. Pierre, as usual, we have had great conversations over the years and uh, I always look forward to chatting with you on these concepts about investing and the philosophy of investing. So. It's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Yeah, likewise. I'm, I'm ready when you are. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Bye now.